Hello, everyone, and welcome to the week of January 4th to 10th, 1971. You are listening to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and each week we take you on a trip down memory lane back 50 years, and we learn all about the hockey news that was taking place at this time back then. This podcast is made possible by the support of our two sponsors. Newspapers.com is the world's largest online newspaper archive, and their support has been crucial in uh, allowing us to do the research to bring this to you every week. They have uh, newspapers from almost every country in the world and in uh, more cities than you could ever imagine would be out there. Lots of interesting stuff at newspapers.com. And we're also sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company located in beautiful downtown Port Coburn, Ontario, just steps from the Welland Canal and a block or two from Lake Erie. The folks at the Breakwall make some of the finest craft beers in Ontario and they have some of the best pub food on the planet. When things get uh, somewhat opened up again after this pandemic, I would love it if any of our users would make it to the Niagara region and we could meet up for a burger and a beer at the break wall. We also like to remind you about our Patreon account. Uh, it's uh, somewhere that you can go and donate to our project here and in exchange you get uh, a lot of special content that uh, we know our, our subscribers are enjoying quite a bit. Uh, you also get early access to each week's free podcast. This podcast right here that we're recording. Uh, Your donations help us keep the lights on, pay the bills, and make the whole production as enjoyable as we can. Go to patreon.com slash hockey50years to donate and we thank you. It, It seems every week we're talking about, well, we had a lot of interesting stories last week. And we're having more the next week. The 1970-71 season was an incredibly interesting year. uh, Mainly because uh, there was a second NHL expansion where Buffalo and Vancouver came in. uh, And it just seemed that things kept progressing each week. More and more news. There were a couple of situations going on in hockey that were uh, seemed to be boiling up to a head. And this week was no exception. Last week, we talked about good news on Sabres goalie Roger Crozier and Red Wings netminder Roy Edwards, both of whom were dealing with really serious health issues. Uh, Gary Unger, the Red Wings, gave a wide-ranging interview to the Detroit Free Press, and that did not make Red Wings management very happy. And, of course, there were a lot of trade rumors, mainly because there were a lot of teams underperforming, a lot of controversy going around, and we had all the juiciest of all those. And uh, I think the big story last week, it looked like the Red Wings hit rock bottom. Well, this time around, lots more news this week. I keep saying it. But the news just keeps coming. Now, after that awful loss to Toronto that we spoke about last week, uh, General Manager Sid Abel of the Red Wings asks for a summit meeting with Detroit owner Bruce Norris. We'll talk about that, but the results of that meeting uh, shocked everyone in hockey. National Hockey League President Clarence Campbell cracked down on NHL brawlers, issuing a bevy of fines for the guilty parties. People leaving the bench to uh, enter into a fracas on the ice seemed to stick in Campbell's craw, and he was bent on ending that practice. But was he going far enough? And the midseason All-Star teams were announced this week. And not many surprises, but we'll tell you the official lineups as they were voted on by the writers around the National Hockey League. 
And as usual, each week we uh, highlight a few of the games that took place. And let's look at the first of those now. The, the first game we're looking at uh, was the only game on a Tuesday night, and it was in Minnesota. Bloomington to be exact the community located directly between Minneapolis and St. Paul and the North Stars were hosting the Red Hot Toronto Maple Leafs who were at this point winners of 10 of their previous 11 games. The game perfectly illustrated why Toronto had risen from one of the worst teams in the entire NHL to the hottest team in early January. Rex McLeod of the Toronto Global Mail and Red Burnett of the Toronto Star provide the info for this game report and we're going to do this one a little different. Uh, we're going to give you the gist of Rex McLeod's report and then we're going to uh, go over what Red Burnett have to say just to kind of give you the uh, perspective of how two different writers in the same city for the same team can view a hockey game. So Rex starts things out by saying that the Toronto Maple Leafs conversion from one of the most erratic teams in the NHL to the one of the most successful has bewildered some, I would venture to say, many observers. How did the Leafs accomplish such a minor miracle in a matter of a few weeks was one of the questions most frequently heard around the league. The answer was obvious for a crowd of 12,195 in Bloomington. The difference has been goalkeeping. Jacques Plante, the Leafs' 42-year-old netminder, played a magnificent game against the North Stars, sometimes frustrating the team all by himself to set up a 2-0 win for the Maple Leafs. It was the third shutout of the season for Plante, and the Leafs' 11th win in their past 12 games had helped them atone for the only blemish on the recent record in uh, in the weeks leading up to this game. Their only loss was uh, to the Stars on Christmas Day, and that was by a 6-3 score. Billy McMillan gave the Leafs the lead early in the first period with his 13th goal of his fine rookie season, and Plant completely frustrated the North Stars for the remainder of uh, the opening 20 minutes. Ron Ellis ensured the win with his 14th goal of the year at 13-17 of the final frame. Now Ellis was playing in spite of the after effects of a concussion which he suffered in Saturday night's game in Toronto and as a precaution Ron put a helmet on and he didn't look like he was adversely affected by the headgear at all. Plant stopped 29 shots 26 of them in the first two periods. The Leafs improved in their checking in the third period and the Stars probably developed a what's-the-use feeling about shooting at the Toronto goal. Anyone watching the game knew that on this night, Plant was not about to be beat. They only had three shots on the Maple Leaf net in the final period. This was a loose, monotonous game, a great deal of the time distinguished only by the superlative net minding of two of hockey's grand old masters of the goal, uh, the Stars Gump Worsley and, of course, the 42-year-old Plant. Worsley stopped 24 shots. He was content to keep uh, office hours in his goal crease, but that was not as exciting enough as uh, Plant would have it. When the Leafs were unable to clear the puck, he showed them how he blocked Minnesota players with poke checks when they tried to sneak around his net. He left his net to recover pucks, or he steered them to Leafs near the boards. He was a goalkeeper, cheerleader, and dispatcher all in one. 
for much of this game and the Leafs really needed that kind of leadership. Normie Allman was uh, one of the Leafs' more energetic skaters. He did a superlative job of forechecking and he set up the Leafs' second goal with a pass to Ellis. Worsley blocked Ellis' shot, but he fell in the process and the other stars were unable to clear the puck. Ronnie, who skirted the perimeter of a tangled mess in front of the fallen Worsley, uh, grabbed the loose puck and he fired it into the open net. McMillan took a pass from Davey Keon near the Minnesota blue line and raced in to score his goal, the first one of the game, as we mentioned. Murray Oliver of the Stars could have intercepted the pass, but, but he just he just missed it. McMillan beat Worsley with a backhand shot, and Bill has a deceptively fine backhand. We think he's been taking lessons from the Leaf captain, Davey Keon. Toronto's defensive record, which had been one of the poorest in the National Hockey League throughout much of the early part of the season, is rapidly becoming one of the most impressive. The Leafs have been scored on only 15 times in the past 12 games, and over that span, they have scored... 57 goals. Now that was Rex McLeod of the, of the Global Mail's take on this game. Here's Red Burnett of the Toronto Star, uh, and this is uh, the report that he filed. He starts off by saying Maple Leaf President King Clancy labeled Jacques Plante's goaltending exhibition as unbelievable, one of the greatest he'd seen in 50 years around the National Hockey League. And when you're coming from an observer like King Clancy, you do have to listen. Although the Irishman is prone to a little bit of blarney, he was not wrong on this night. Minnesota North Stars General Manager Ren Blair called Plant unnerving, frustrating, and downright discouraging to rival teams. Blair said that the North Stars should have had five goals in the first 40 minutes. Uh, he said, I knew we'd be flat for that final 20 after being unable to score in the first 40. That's the way it was as the Leafs beat the Minnesota North Stars 2-0 for their first win in three meetings between the two teams this season. Plant roamed all over his team's defensive zone to field pucks, feed passes to his forwards, and generally stymie a North Stars team that outshot the Leafs 26-15 over the first two periods. Some idea of how badly Plant's goaltending wizardry demoralized the North Stars can be gleaned from the fact that the Leafs outshot them 11-3 over the final 20 minutes. Some of the 12,195 brave souls who turned up despite the 8 degrees below zero weather said they were very critical of their team's failure to beat Plant, who's going to be 42 on January 17th. Punch Imlac used to call Johnny Bauer the most amazing athlete in the world, and he would rave about Johnny's reflexes. But there has to be a correction here now. Plant at 41 is quicker and better than he was at age 20. Plant told Red Burnett after the game, I know it's incredible, almost unbelievable, but I'm playing better now than I did when I was with Canadians, where he won five Stanley Cups. Plant says his reflexes are just as fast and he has far greater knowledge of the position right now. There was one dissenter to uh, Plant's magnificence in this game, and this was North Stars coach Jackie Gordon, who usually doesn't resort to uh, uh, taking down the other team, but with his team going as bad as they did tonight, he had to do something to kind of deflect the blame. Uh, Gordon said, I didn't think Plant looked that good all night at all. We made him look good with our erratic shooting.
the shooting that they did manage. In the third period, they didn't make Plant look good. They didn't make him look anything. They only had three shots. Now, the teams meet again tonight in Toronto, uh, the, the Wednesday night game, and the Leafs coach John McClellan said the Leafs are going to have problems with that return game. McClellan said that Billy McMillan has a bad back, Bob Bond has a busted toe, Ron Ellis is still not 100% from that concussion, and they still have to get along with old George Armstrong, who seems to have a bad knee. Burnett then went on to describe the two goals. He says on the first one, McMillan opened the scoring at 542 when Jim Dory trapped the North Stars with a quick pass to Davy Keon. The latter threaded the puck past former Leafs Murray Oliver to McMillan, who had slipped past defenseman Tom Reed. He skated in on Gump Worsley, the North Stars goalie, and deked him away from the short side and shoveled in a backhand for his 13th goal of the season. Red Burnett then went on to say that the way Plant was boarding up his goal, that was enough. That would be all the Leafs needed, but Ron Ellis made the victory sure by driving home his own rebound in the third period. Norm Ullman froze the North Star's defense and let Ellis uh, roam in uncovered. Worsley had to hit the deck to make the initial stop, and he was a sitting duck on the rebound. Uh, Paul Henderson was the guy who actually got the play started with a pass to Ullman. Burnett went on to say that in this game, the Leafs actually were not hitting at all, and except for Plant's ability to field pucks outside his goal crease and recover and clear away rebounds, they might have been killed by a more uh, experienced and a more offensive team. But the North Stars are not that, and on this night, the Leafs were much better and were full value for their 2-0 win. Our next highlighted contest took place in Montreal where the Canadians played the role of rude hosts as they spanked the visiting Vancouver Canucks to the tune of 7-3. Pat Kern of the Montreal Gazette was there as usual and he provided us with a lot of observations. Uh, Pat begins by saying that Ivan Cornway, Jean-Claude Tremblay, and Guy Lapointe were the well-chosen three stars as the Canadians rallied to route the Canucks 7-3 in a game that had a lot of penalties at the Montreal Forum. Cornway, who didn't rate for the Eastern Division All-Stars that were announced up this week, connected for his 19th and 20th goals in the last 27 games. Tremblay, who got the nod for the second team defense, scored a goal and he added three assists assists while rookie Guy Lapointe was strong in defense and he helped set up three goals all on his own. Jean Beliveau and Peter Mahovlich also scored two goals each for the Habs and Mickey Redmond was the other marksman as the Habs came back from a 2-0 deficit to win and win rather convincingly. The Canucks got goals from Dale Talon and Paul Popeil within 86 seconds after the opening faceoff, and Roser Pema netted their third marker late in, in the third period. However, there was a dark star greatly responsible for the Montreal victory, dark because John Ferguson did his best to turn out the lights on the Canucks with the most hitting he's done all season since he made his comeback. Now what caused gentle John to get fired up before the eyes of his favorite referee Bill Friday who tagged him with three minors a major for fighting with Miss with Mike Corrigan and a misconduct for Belton Corrigan while he was sitting on the bench. What got John so fired up? Well he had this to say. Before the game I expected to play on a line with Richard and Redmond but then the coach changed his mind and put me out with Mahovlich and LaRose. I said, what the hell? The only thing to do is play the game the only way I know how. It's a great way to play when you win. 
Our other highlighted game this week saw the Philadelphia Flyers end an 11-game winless streak at the expense of the Pittsburgh Penguins at the Spectrum in Philadelphia in a Thursday night contest. Ed Conrad of the Philadelphia Daily News helped us with the details. Ed says that Bobby Clark made a lot of people happy at the Spectrum, but Jim Morrison wasn't one of them. Jim Morrison, you see, is the Pittsburgh Penguins' 38-year-old defenseman who played the role of sacrificial victim as the Flyers finally bid farewell to their 11-game winless streak with a narrow 4-3 victory. In the Penguins' dressing room after the game, Morrison groaned, it was my stinking fault, or words to that effect. Jim says, I should have known better. I saw this opening on the boards and I figured I could glance it between the two Philly players. Well, Morrison went on to say it, it hits Clark and he's in clean. Still our goalie, who was Al Smith, made one stop, but the puck glances off Smithy's pads and hits Clark's foot and rolls in the net. That was the game-winning goal. Now, Clark, Clark's second goal of the game, uh, that's what that was, broke a 3-3 tie with about nine and a half minutes remaining. Now, that was a kind of imperfect play, Clark says, accompanies a slump such as the Flyers have just shaken. Uh, Clark, he said, when you go so long without winning, everybody gets so tight, they're afraid to try just about anything. Nobody's relaxed, nobody wants to be the GOAT, so they try to concentrate on defensive hockey. Clark went on to say that uh, most players don't want to be responsible if the other team scores. Everybody feels responsible during a slump. The Flyers' young star said that when, when it gets like this, uh, Win, not winning in 10 games the puck sort of becomes like a hot potato uh, guys keep firing it around but nobody's doing anything they're letting it up to the next guy and that doesn't work in hockey that's why there had been no goals that's why the flyers weren't scoring to illustrate what bobby clark is talking about here the flyers hadn't scored more than two goals in a game since beating the st louis blues back on December 9th. In that stretch since then, they were 0-9-2, no wins, nine losses, two ties, with losses in the last five games before this game against Pittsburgh. So the win was more than welcome. It was desperately needed. Defenseman Brent Hughes, not one of the Flyers' bigger names, said after the game that he thought the, the, the big guys were determined to score some goals and get a victory for a change. You get that kind of determination, as what evident in the first period, when you're going to get results. Uh, Hughes said that he figured if Pittsburgh's goalie didn't come up with some outstanding saves, they probably could have been up by five or six alone in the first period the Flyers were that good another factor in this game for Philadelphia were uh, other than they were moving the puck as well as they had been but they also were throwing their rate around with some solid checking something this Philadelphia club has the ability to do but in the early part of this season they just weren't hitting tonight they were and the Penguins felt it there was a uh, I guess you could say a strange incident because of who was involved uh, in the in the second period, just after the Flyers had taken a 2-1 lead, Serge Bernier was punched by the pugnacious Glenn Sather of the Penguins during a mix-up, and both players came up with the fists flying. Well, of course, they both ended in the penalty box, and when Sather's heckling got on Bernier's nerves, uh, the young flyer forward left the penalty box and tried to get at Sather. The only place he got was the dressing room as he was ejected from the game and subject to an automatic $100 fine. 
Sather, of course, ever the needler, waved goodbye as Bernier left the ice. Bernier later said that uh, he was only doing what Coach Vic Stasiak wants him to do, which was to play a little rougher. Bernier says this fighting in the NHL, it's new to me. That's not what I did in Quebec. Now, by far the biggest news item of the weekend, it seemed to dominate uh, all facets of the NHL news, was the ongoing drama around the management and coaching of the Detroit Red Wings, and we'll give that considerable attention this time around. After last weekend's 13 to nothing loss to Toronto, it was clear that things were rapidly coming to a head in Detroit, and this week they did, but things unfolded in a manner which very few or any hockey observers actually saw coming. The resultant hockey equivalent of a mushroom cloud over Motown changed the fortunes of the Detroit franchise for years to come, and we'll tell you how it unfolded. Now, the week began pretty much as expected, given the circumstances of the uh, blowouts that the Red Wings have been experiencing. Uh, Detroit General Manager Sid Abel requested a summit meeting with owner Bruce Norris. Abel's request for the meeting raised questions among many as why he, as general manager, just didn't dismiss the obviously overmatched former college coach, Ned Harkness, and try and right the ship himself. With the benefit of hindsight, we should have known the answer to that question. Jack Berry, the fine uh, hockey columnist, uh, hockey writer of Detroit Free Press, broke the news story on Tuesday morning. Uh, Barry said that trade talk went on the back burner Monday night at the Olympia while general manager Sid Abel waited for an air clearing session with club owner Bruce Norris. Abel and Montreal general manager Sam Pollock have been discussing a deal but Abel said he wasn't doing anything until he talked to Bruce Norris. Abel, you see, was upset over the uh, Detroit Free Press's Sunday sports quiz with coach Ned Harkness. In the quiz, Harkness quoted Norris as telling him that you are the victim of us not doing our homework for the last 10 years. Whether Norris told Harkness that or whether it was more Ned Harkness BS, we don't know, but Harkness gave the quote in the interview. Sid Abel, of course, felt that that was a slam at his stewardship of the Red Wings since he's been general manager since April 28, 1962. Uh, Sid said, I hope to get together with Mr. Norris in a few days. I want to sit down and discuss all policies regarding the Red Wings. Those close to the Detroit organization say that uh, there has been a division between Abel's and Harkness's coaching philosophies and that with the team going so bad, Harkness doesn't want to be hung for past policies over which he had no control. You can't blame Ned for that. But Abel responds by saying he doesn't think the team is that bad or that it's much different from the one that he coached to third place last season. And that, of course, is where the divide exists. Barry's report went on to uh, say that the Red Wings were busy talking trade and that I, it, they, Barry thought that Abel probably wanted to run a couple of trade scenarios past the owner. Uh, the Canadians reportedly want, need a center and Gary Unger was on thin ice after his comments to Barry uh, a week or so ago. Toronto was said to have offered Mike Walton for Unger, but Abel had quickly turned it down. Well, we'll find out that might not have been the case. The Red Wings need muscle and uh, th they would probably like to get maybe Terry Harper from Montreal, according to Barry. 
Well, Abel said he talked trade with a number of teams after that 13 to nothing score, but everybody uh, was offering garbage for for caviar, and Abel didn't want to make that deal. And he said uh, something that NHL general managers always need to remember, you better not make a trade in haste when things are really bad. Well, the requested meeting between Abel and Norris finally did take place on Tuesday evening, and it lasted into the early hours of Wednesday morning, and the hockey world was shocked to learn on Wednesday morning that Sid Abel resigned from the wings after what was described as a violent confrontation between the owner and his general manager. Uh, We don't know if it was physically violent. I doubt it because uh, Bruce Norris probably would not have survived a confrontation with Sid Abel. Uh, What we did find out Wednesday morning was that Sid was holding a press conference, and at that press conference, he did announce his resignation, and he didn't hold back his reasons for leaving the Detroit Hockey Club. Abel said in his press conference that uh, Jim Bishop and Ned Harkness were responsible for destroying the Detroit Red Wing hockey team. Sid said all the the problems with the Detroit Hockey Club started when Mr. Bishop arrived on the scene. Abel had called the press conference to announce his resignation, and of course, writers were stunned at the news. In effect, Abel admitted he had lost the power struggle to Bishop, the former coach of the Oshawa Green Gales Championship lacrosse team, who was named an executive director of the Red Wings 18 months ago. Abel revealed some of the gory details of what had been going on in the Red Wings executive suite. He said he went to team lawyer John Ziegler and asked him that if if Sid had the power to fire Harkness. He told me I did not. Abel said it was then that he began to seriously consider resigning. Abel caught club owner Bruce Norris, the Olympia front office, and all the players by surprise with his decision to resign, which he revealed uh, before calling the press conference, he told a few people. With his resignation, Sid Abel ends a 30-year association with the Red Wings as a player, captain, coach, and manager. And Sid declared on his way out the door, I think that some good may come from my resignation. I firmly believe that Mr. Norris had been unaware of the bill of goods that it was sold to him by Bishop and Harkness. Bishop and Harkness, by the way, go back a long way, but not because of a hockey association. Oh no, this is all because of lacrosse. Abel said that Norris now should be aware of the bill of goods after the conversation uh, in his office in Chicago. Abel said he talked to him like he's talking here now, not holding anything back. He told him exactly how he felt. At this point during the press conference, somebody asked Abel how he would assess Harkness as a coach. And we'll just give you Abel's response. Sid said, I can't because he's not a coach. I don't think he knows how to change lines or do the things a coach has to do to survive in the National Hockey League. He can talk, though, to listen to him and Bishop. We are the greatest hockey team in the world between games. We lose two games on the weekend, but on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, we're the greatest. Abel went on to say that as for communication, he'd had more talks with Harkness uh, in the last few months than he thought it was... uh, humanly possible. 
Uh, I didn't believe it possible, Abel continued, that a fellow could come in, and I didn't hire him, don't forget, and in four months forced me to get out. But all our problems started when the other guy, referring to Jim Bishop, arrived on the scene. I don't like to say I was squeezed out by those two. I'm going out on my own. Now, Abel did not uh, come across as a vindictive, spoiled, uh, sour grapes type of guy. He, he, he made some classy statements in his press conference. He said he was proud of association with the Red Wings and with Mr. Norris. Uh, Abel pointed out that he played hockey for Nor- the Norris's father, the late James Norris Sr., and with Bruce Norris's brother, the late James Norris Jr., and it was a wonderful association. Abel went on to say, I want this to be clearly understood. My association with Bruce Norris has always been the best. We grew up in hockey together, you might say. He's treated my well and is be wonderful to my family. I want to stress again that I did not ask Mr. Norris to choose between myself, Harkness, and Bishop. It was my decision, and I'd already made it. So where did that leave the Red Wings management situation now that Sid Abel had left? Well, it took a couple days, but just before the end of the week, the pretty well unthinkable happened. Bruce Norris announced that Ned Harkness, the terrible coach, was leaving the coaching position, and that was the right move everybody thought, except for the fact that Harkness was kicked upstairs And he was made general manager of the Red Wings. Ned Harkness, general manager of the Red Wings, after being nothing more than a college coach for the last how many years? What a rapid ascension. This is the Peter Principle in action. One always rises to the level of their incompetence. We will explore this whole week in a lot more detail in one of our uh, special content podcasts for our Patreon subscribers. If you'd like to really hear the deep details of how all this unfolded, uh, subscribe to our Patreon account and you'll get a lot more than we've been able to provide here in the free podcast. There's a lot of other hockey news this week and we're going to get to it right now. The National Hockey League's mid-season all-star teams were selected this week, uh, voted on by writers around the National Hockey League, and here are the teams uh, for the Eastern Division, with the points, by the way. Uh, Ed Jockman of the Rangers got the most point, and he's the first all-star goalie, and his running mate with the New York club, Gilles Villemier, 36 points, is the other goaltender. The defenseman, Uh, Bobby Orr, 105, Brad Park of the Rangers on the first team, Jim Nielsen, Rangers, and J.C. Tromley, the Canadians, on the second team. The centers for the Eastern Division team, Phil Esposito of Boston, John Mattel of the Rangers. On right wing, you have the Bruins' Kenny Hodge and John McKenzie of the same club. And the left wingers, Johnny Busick of the Bruins. And a nice surprise, Dave Ballone of the Rangers makes the second All-Star team. For the Western Division, no question that the goalkeeper was Tony Esposito of Chicago and the backup, Ernie Wakeley of the St. Louis Blues. The defense, the first pair was Keith Magnuson and Pat Stapleton of the Blackhawks and Bill White made the second team with Barkley Plager of the St. Louis Blues. The centers were both Chicago pivots, Stan Makita and Pitt Martin. The right wingers for the Western Division, and this is where it departs from the Blackhawks, you have Ken Schenkel of Pittsburgh and Timmy Ecclestone of the St. Louis Blues on the left wing, the Hull brothers, Bobby and Dennis, of the Chicago Blackhawks. 
One notable exception was the absence, for the first time since the Stone Age, of the Red Wing great Gordy Howe. But it's not uh, that Gordy was not up to standard this year at all, but rather that he's been held back by injuries. And don't forget that the ongoing drama in Detroit hasn't helped this play either, as he spent considerable time shuffling from defense to forward line back and forth and uh, that just made Gordy a little less noticeable I think to the rest of the hockey world. Another big story this week was National Hockey League President Clarence Campbell cracking down on players leaving benches to join brawls on the ice. Uh, The Canadian press had the details of uh, Campbell's latest rounds of actions against players engaging in what he wants to be prohibited activity. Campbell levied a total of $7,000 in fines against players from four NHL teams who left their benches during two games to join on-ice melees. In addition, Campbell assessed center Walt McKechnie of the North Stars 250 bucks for an incident in which he attempted to accost a referee after receiving a penalty. Just prior to Christmas, Campbell handed out a total of 15,850 fines for similar incidents. The first uh, incident dealt with was one between the Toronto Maple Leafs and Philadelphia Flyers in a game at Maple Leaf Gardens on Boxing Day, December 26. The second occurred the following night between the Rangers and the St. Louis Blues in Madison Square Garden before a very appreciative crowd who seemed to enjoy the fisticuffs. In that first Donnybrook, 14 Philadelphia players each paid an automatic $100 fine for leaving their bench to join the fight. 12 Toronto players paid $200 each because it was the second such occurrence by the Leafs in less than three weeks. Repeat offenders. We'll hear that uh, phrase a lot more in the NHL over the coming decades. In addition for this fracas, Philadelphia goalie Bernie Perrant was assessed $100 for leaving his crease to join the Boxing Day festivities. The Toronto outbreak occurred as Brian Spencer of the Leafs and Bob Kelly of the Flyers were moving toward their own benches for a routine player change before a face-off. Less than two minutes were left in the game when this happened. The pair collided, dropped the gloves and began swinging. Campbell said in a statement, both benches immediately emptied and all the players began fighting. What really exacerbated the situation was that after Spencer and Kelly were separated and the officials were escorting them to their respective benches, Spencer suddenly, out of without warning, punched another Philadelphia player and this started the brawl all over again and it took 10 minutes to clear it up and get play resumed. Spencer then uh, was given an extra $100 fine for his failure to go to the penalty box and of course the $50 idiot is automatically nicked for because of the 10-minute misconduct. The Rangers-Flyers brawl occurred immediately following a Ranger goal when a fight erupted between Bob Plager of the Blues and Ted Irvin of the Rangers. The fight was broken up by the officials but in the feuding pair, and then was joined all of a sudden by Billy Plager, Bob's brother, who'd been given a misconduct penalty, uh, and they took their place on the penalty bench. Just before play resumed, the third Plager brother with the Blues, that's Barkley Plager, skated past and shouted uh, some sort of remark at Ted Irvin. Irvin got up and returned the insults, whatever they were, and indicated he was ready to leave the penalty box, but uh, to his credit, Ted stayed 
in the bench. Without further provocation, both players' benches just emptied, but all the players just sort of stood around without a blow being struck. Meanwhile, Bill Plager left the penalty box to enter the general milling around that was going on. As a result, 13 New York players were fined 100 bucks each for leaving the players' bench and the same number of blues paid a similar price. Bill Flager, who left the penalty box, was fined $150, and teammate Billy Sutherland, usually a placid sort of player, was hit for two $100 incidents when it was discovered he had left the bench to enter the fight for the second time during the same period. With all this money lately going to the NHL and fines, you might wonder where it goes. Well, the fines are deducted from the players' salaries and then remitted to the National Hockey League Players' Emergency Fund. Now, as you can imagine, with all the turmoil in Detroit and to a lesser extent in cities like Montreal and Philadelphia, the trade talk was pretty much at an all-time high in the NHL this, this week. And we have the latest from this week's rumor mill. Montreal General Manager Sam Pollock started the week off by responding to rumors that the Habs were close to a trade with the Detroit Red Wings. Pollock admitted he'd been talking trade with then Red Wings General Manager Sid Abel, but Sam insisted that while they were talking trade, no player names were discussed. Now, for my part, I'm not exactly sure how two National Hockey League general managers can sit down and talk trade without discussing the names of players. Come on, man. Come on, Sam. What really went on? Give us the real goods. Well, while Pollock was denying that any trades were imminent, his capable assistant, Ron Caron, the professor, as he would be not come to be known, he's the assistant GM, and he was in New York that very day, and he said that Montreal was working on a couple of transactions, uh, failing to deny that anything was in the works as his boss had done earlier in the day. But the professor was careful to uh, uh, remark without names, saying he wouldn't say any of the names that are being discussed, only in that he was talking to a couple teams. And being in New York, you can imagine that he was huddling with Emil Francis. Another National Hockey League general manager who was in New York at the same time was Keith Allen of the Flyers. Yes, those Flyers who were winless in 11 games. Now, Keith wouldn't come right out and admit that he was talking trade with Emil Francis of the Rangers, but he made it pretty clear that the New York club had assets which he coveted. The problem for the Flyers is that what they have to sell is basically of no use to the New York Rangers, uh, unless they want to unwisely unload a first-round draft pick for a has-been or never will be because you know that's what Francis is going to offer for it. Reports indicated that New York could have center Andre Lacroix, the Flyers, who seems to be a permanent resident of Coach Vic Stasiuk's doghouse. Or they could get one of Philadelphia's fine two goalies, uh, Doug Favelle or Bernie Perrant. But the Rangers goalies just were would be named this week to the first and second all-star team of the East. So why would Emil Francis want to pick up uh, one of them or give away one of his two fine netminders? A deal between those two teams really seemed unlikely at this point in time. At midweek, uh, Milt Schmidt, the general manager of the Bruins, 
was spotted in Toronto at Maple Leaf Gardens. Uh, he denied he was there to talk trade with the Leafs, even though it's well known that center Mike Walton continues to be available. Walton would fit nicely in Bruins, and he has two really good friends on the Bruins, namely Derek Sanderson and business partner Bobby Orr, with whom he runs a hockey school in Ontario. Schmidt, with a wink-wink, nudge-nudge sort of attitude, said he was in Toronto uh, on a scouting trip to watch uh, Ontario Juniors in the OHA Junior A Series, and uh, he wasn't really looking for a trade. Harold Ballard said that he wasn't talking trade with Schmidt because he doesn't want any of the garbage that Uncle Milty was offering. Curiously, however, at this time, Toronto General Manager Jim Gregory and Coach John McClellan were both out of town, actually both in different cities. So just who was Milt Schmidt talking to? We, we know the answer to that one, don't we, boys and girls? By the way, the Leafs knew that Sid Abel was quitting before anybody, thanks to a trade rumor. King Clancy, the Leafs' Mr. Everything, had heard that Detroit was trading Gary Unger to Montreal in a three-way deal that would include Philadelphia as well as the Habs. Well, the King had delivered the trade offer of Mike Walton to the Wings for Gary Unger, and he hadn't actually gotten a, ply, a reply to that offer from the Red Wings. So the King got on the blower, and he called the guy who would know exactly what's going on, said Abel. Abel said there's nothing to the trade rumor. Don't worry about it. We are not making a move with Unger at this time. And then at the end of the conversation, almost as an afterthought, Sid says to his old friend King, by the way, I've resigned as the Red Wings GM. On the same day as all this was taking place, Jack Berry of the Free Press, and boy hasn't Jack been earning his pay this week, he reported that he had learned of the proposed three-way deal that prompted Clancy's phone call. Uh, in the deal, the Red Wings would give up their two leading scorers from a year ago. That would be Gary Unger and Frank Mahovlich. And in return, they would get some badly needed defensive help, a goaltender, a center, and a right winger for those two stars. Barry said that in, in the proposed deal, Unger would go to the Philadelphia Flyers, a team which really badly needs scoring strength. Frank Mahovlich would go to Montreal where he would rejoin his younger brother Pete and he'd team up with uh, Jean Beliveau and Yvonne Cornway on a line. In return, Jack Berry said the Red Wings would receive from Montreal defenseman Terry Harper, who of course is a big rough tough defenseman that the Red Wings could really use. The Wings would also get right winger Mickey Redmond from Montreal. The final Montreal player coming to Detroit would be reserve goalie Phil Mir who would serve as the backup and understudy to Roy Edwards. The Red Wings would also get from Philadelphia center Andre Lacroix, who is probably the most offensively gifted of the Flyers. The three-way transaction would then send goalie Bernie Perrant from Philadelphia to Montreal, while center Ralph Backstrom would go to Mon uh, from Montreal to the Flyers as well. And the Flyers, to cap off a very complicated trade, would get 20-year-old American-born center Bobby Sheehan from the Canadians. That would be quite a deal. Of course, uh, that deal didn't take place, but on Friday morning, the Toronto papers were reporting that the Leafs were sending Mike Walton and Bruce Gamble to Philadelphia for one of the Flyers' goalkeepers, either Bernie Prawn or Doug Favell, and a defenseman. 
The the uh, Toronto papers also carried the three-cornered uh, rumor between uh, Montreal, Detroit, and the Flyers. The trade rumors weren't uh, restricted to the Eastern Division, or at least the Eastern uh, a part of the continent out in Vancouver both the Vancouver Sun and province had information that Canucks uh, center Ray Cullen who had been expected really to lead the team in scoring this year after being drafted from Minnesota in the expansion draft last summer uh, he was being shopped around by Vancouver Canucks general manager Bud Poyle uh, Cullen's a center Poyle figures he's got an excess at that position and uh, so that's where he's going to trade from he's looking for help on the wings uh, preferably a man who can put the puck in the net consistently you're not going to get a guy like that for Ray Cullen this year but sorry to inform you back again with the Red Wings uh, quickly and this comes from the Windsor Star sports editor Jack Dolmage uh, a veteran hockey writer and he's seen it all in his years. Dolnage uh, said he was going out on a limb and predicting that the eventual general manager of the Red Wings, and this is before Harkness was named, would be Red Kelly, currently the general manager coach of the Pittsburgh Penguins. Red is a former Red Wing great, probably the best Red Wing defenseman of all time up to this point in their history. And uh, Dolmage predicted that once the season is over and before contracts are renewed for next year, Red Kelly would find his way back to Detroit where his NHL career started. One more quick note before we uh, finish up this week and all overlooked in all the trade talk. And we'll look at this as time goes on. But Charles O. Finley, the uh, owner of the California Seals, quiet for a week or two. Uh, made the news when he was forced to go public with a denial that he was about to move his team out of Oakland. But he wasn't taking the team far, just across the bay to San Francisco. Finley did have talks with officials from uh, San Francisco about a uh, project that was happening in the downtown over there where an entertainment sports complex was being built. But this uh, didn't look like it was going to come to pass. But the... uh, San Francisco executives with whom he was talking said that the uh, talks with Finley were just a get acquainted session session, and that uh, the San Francisco folks really didn't know what Finley was intending on doing because they believed that Finley didn't know what he was going to be doing. Well, what did we learn from this week's session, everyone? Well, we learned that Sid Abel was a man of principle. He wasn't going to have his uh, authority usurped by newcomers, and he left the Red Wings. That was a big story. We learned about a lot of trades that were going on, and in fact, as trade talk intensifies, the names involved seem to be getting bigger and bigger. And we learned that the NHL All-Stars were... uh, named this week and they were pretty predictable in who was on the teams next week we got some more big stories as the red wings make doug barkley their full-time head coach to replace ned harkness a lot more trade talk will be around next week a lot of it centering on mike walton of the maple leafs and in fact we'll report on one major trade that did take place and it did not involve either walton or the maple leafs 
and the All-Star rosters for the All-Star game in Boston would be filled out by the coaches who this year are Harry Sinden and Scotty Bowman and we will have much, much more. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. We can't thank him enough for all his help. This is not possible without the expertise that Andy lends to this production. If you're thinking of uh, putting out a podcast yourself, Andy is doing these things professionally for people. He puts together a first-rate operation. Get a hold of me and I will put you in touch with Andy. The very popular Juno-nominated Toronto Indie Rock Group, Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our intro and exit music. Uh, They're in studio now and they will have a new uh, CD coming out very soon. Other musical pieces and sound effects in the podcast come from Andy Cole as well. And our research is from files from the Toronto Star, Toronto Globe and Mail, and of course, the many fine publications found at newspapers.com. You can find us every day on Twitter under the handle at Hockey50Years. We're on Facebook under the 50 Years Ago on Hockey banner. We have a WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com. And of course, you can download this podcast wherever your favorite podcasts are found. Don't forget our Patreon account at patreon.com slash hockey50years. We can certainly use all the assistance that we can get in putting this thing together. On that note, we thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. When the ice